Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to do the first 10 verses. I'm going to call this section of scripture Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. This, the first 10 verses of the chapter are basically a description of Melchizedek. Verses 11 through 28 of chapter 7 are a comparison of Melchizedek to Jesus, our high priest. So we need to know what Melchizedek is like before we can compare him to Jesus. So we'll do that in the first 10 verses. Our context is this. At the end of chapter 6, the author of Hebrews had told his readers that God's promises were certain. His promises to Abraham that he would give Abraham land, offspring, and blessing. He swore with a promise to do that, not with the land so much, but with the offspring and the blessing. And he swore, he made the promise one, and then he confirmed that promise with his oath because he could swear by no one higher. The point being is that God was bound and determined to fulfill his promises. And one of those promises was that Abraham's children would be a blessing to the whole world. And that would, of course, would include spiritual Christians who were children of Abraham. And so that promise is secure. And so why would you want to go running back to Judaism? kind of the idea of chapter 6. So we start now in chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. We'll stop in the middle of the sentence here, the end of verse 1. Melchizedek, Clark translates that name as meaning the justifier of those who dwell in him. John Gill says it means the king of righteousness, and that's the way most people translate that his name, the king of righteousness. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that this Melchizedek was the highest and last representative of the Noahic covenant. He knew God somehow. He was the priest of the Most High God, kind of like Job. He's kind of disconnected from Hebrew history, but all of a sudden you find somebody out in the middle of the boondocks worshiping Yahweh, which just shows that God can reach down and choose people anywhere, anyhow he wants to. Now, some people actually argue that this Melchizedek was Jesus himself who appeared in a Christophany so that he literally had no genealogy, not just literarily <laughs> didn't have a genealogy. I got this from gotquestions.org. I'm sure that there are sincere people and learned people who believe that. I don't think so at all. I'm, I'm going to assume that's not true. It's not Jesus. I can't see Jesus being a king of a city in the ancient Near East. That just is a little bit beyond my conception. So we're going to assume this is some unknown king who was also a priest of God which means he would be representing to his people that the Most High God, Yahweh, was the true God. Now, note that there is no objection to him being a, being a king in addition to being a priest. Lots of kings were priests, as John Gill says. And Jesus was a king and a priest, too, incidentally, showing a relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. So, as John Gill says, Melchizedek is, in this aspect, too, a perfect type of Jesus, who was a priest and a king, as well as a prophet. Now, Salem, he was the king of Salem. That's thought to be an ancient name for Jerusalem. It probably is. Some, Adam Clark says some people think it was Shechem. I, I've never heard that before. We'll just say it's Jerusalem. And the word means peace. So, Jerusalem means something like foundations of peace or possessions of peace, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary. Now, peace is an appropriate name for the type of our high priest, Jesus. So now we see Melchizedek, he's righteous. He's a king. He's righteous like Jesus. He's a king like Jesus. And he is the king of peace like Jesus is the prince of peace. So already we are seeing the parallels with our Lord Jesus. He's priest of the Most High God. Now, that phrase, Most High God, is only used 
in the New Testament twice. Let's look at it here in chapter 14. Genesis 14 is where the story of Melchizedek is found in the Old Testament record. Verse 19 of Genesis 14 says, He, referring to Melchizedek, blessed him, blessed Abraham, and said, Abram is blessed by God most high. So Melchizedek called himself, called God, God most high, the most high God. Genesis 14:22. but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And God most high means there ain't nobody higher than he is. So this shows that Melchizedek served the one true God, somebody we never heard of before who was not from the lineage of Abraham, served Yahweh. Now this phrase, Jameson Fawcett Brown points out, is, quote, used to imply that the God whom Melchizedek served is the true God and not one of the gods of the nations around. So it is used in the only other cases in which it is found in the New Testament, namely in the address of the demoniac, and I didn't look this up, I'm assuming he's talking about the Gadarene demoniac, or the Gerasene demoniac, and the divining damsel constrained to confess that her own gods were false and God the only true God. That's referring to the damsel, the young girl in Philippi who was demon-possessed, Acts 16, verse 17, as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She might have been talking like a demon-possessed girl, but she was speaking the truth. So Most High God is an interesting title of God we need to remember. Now, this Melchizedek met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. We read this in Genesis 14:19. He, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Now, Melchizedek was very, no doubt very happy that four foreign kings had been defeated, and he was no doubt very thankful that Abraham did it, very thankful to Abraham for doing that. And so he blessed Abraham. I'm going to talk about the little battle Abraham had in just a minute. But he had won a battle against four kings from the Mesopotamian Valley who had invaded down there in the south of Judah. Well, it wasn't called Judah then, but around Jerusalem and the south of the Dead Sea. Abraham had beat those four kings, and so Melchizedek blessed him. So there's another parallel with Jesus. Jesus blesses his people because Abraham, the people of God were in Abraham because he was the father of Abraham. He's the father of us all. And Melchizedek blessed him. So now the high priest is like Jesus who blesses his people. Now we need to be careful not to confuse this blessing with the tithes that Melchizedek got back from Abraham. I used to get that confused all the time. Just had a mental block about this passage ever since. So don't confuse that. Now this blessing that Melchizedek gave Abraham was after Abraham was returned from defeating the kings. Well, we read that in Genesis 14.1. In those days, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. Now, I, just to make this simple, I'm going to call these the Babylonian Four. Amraphel, king of Shinar. So that's a king. Some, Shinar is Babylon, really. That's the old ancient name for Babylon, which is the southern part of the Mesopotamian Valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, the so-called cradle of civilization, right before those two rivers meet together and then run into the Persian Gulf. And that, of course, was east of the Dead Sea, where these this was east of uh, Israel. Ariok, king of Elassar, if you look at the map, you'll see Ur, where Abraham grew up, right across the Euphrates River, they think, is an old ancient Mesopotamian town of Elassar. So Ariok came from there. Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. Elam was a little bit further to the west 
past the Euphrates River on the southern reaches of the excuse me, west of the Tigris River at the southern reaches of the Tigris River, Elam was not just a city. That was an ancient kingdom. It was there for many, many years. It was the kingdom, if I remember correctly, that Cyrus the Great was governing before he founded the Persian Empire. So it was kind of the, the basis of the Persian Empire. That it was where Susa was, where Daniel met, where Daniel died. So it was a famous place. Serious business to be attacked by that guy, I would think. And this last guy, titled King of Goim, and I don't know where Goim is. I tried to look it up, couldn't find it. I assume it's one of these cities in the Mesopotamian Valley. So these Babylonian four kings, what they did is they came down on a raid, and they came down to the south of the Dead Sea, where we have Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Adma, and Zeboim. If you look on a map, you'll see, at least on the atlas.org maps, which are the best that are out there, they have Sodom and Gomorrah with question marks. That's interesting because if you go to Israel, they have it marked where Sodom actually was on the east shore of the Dead Sea at the very southern end of the Dead Sea. I don't know why they have a question mark. They have an archaeological site there, but maybe it's questionable. I don't know. But at any rate, these Babylonian four kings came down there and they attacked what I will call the Salt Sea Five. The five kings down there, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Admah, and Zeboim, the five cities I just mentioned. So we'll call those the Salt Sea Five. Salt Sea was the old name for the Dead Sea. Now, the Babylonian Four came down and did, went on a plundering raid of the Salt Sea Five down there south of the Sea of Galilee. And one of those cities, of course, was Sodom, and that's where Abraham's nephew Lot was living. And they carried off Lot and a bunch of his stuff and headed back to Babylon, and the way they had to do that was, of course, they had to go north to get around the desert. They couldn't just go straight east over the desert, so they were heading north to go over the where the Euphrates River goes on its east-west slant right in Israel, excuse me, in Syria, and they were going to cross there and go back to Babylon, and Abraham chased them all the way up to the northern Israel of Dan, then they went north of Damascus, and he whooped them. And he did it with his private troops. He didn't do it with any help from those five kings. He did it with his own people. This, to me, was pretty amazing. A sheep herder militarily beating four kings. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that the KGV rendering of this saying that Abraham slaughtered the kings, that would be in Hebrews 7, verse 1, our verse Melchizedek, who met Abraham and blessed him as he, Abraham, returned from slaughtering the kings. It actually has a questionable translation. Defeating is what Holman Christian Study Bible has. But some people say that he killed three out of four of the kings. They know he didn't kill Ariot, king of Elisar, because he lived and reigned after the disaster, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. But he did beat him, and that was quite a feat. So he's on his way back, and on his way back, he stops by Jerusalem on the way south, and or Salem it was called then, and he met Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, no doubt, was very happy that those four foreign kings were defeated, and that's why he blessed Abraham. So we go to Hebrews 7, verse 2, and Abraham gave him, gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything first. His name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Now the fact that he blessed Abraham shows that Abraham, excuse me, the fact that Abraham gave him a tenth, gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything, shows that Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. And since Levi was a descendant of Abraham, 
Levi was also inferior to Melchizedek. And Levi represented the law of Moses. So therefore the law of Moses is inferior to Melchizedek who represents Jesus. So the law is inferior to Jesus, which of course fits well in with the book of angels because Jesus is superior to the law. He's superior to angels. He's superior to everything. So why would you Hebrew Christians want to go running back to Moses? By the way, but the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham also shows that Melchizedek is superior superior to Abraham and by extension, Levi, who is a descendant of Abraham, because it's always the superior that gives a blessing to the inferior. We'll talk about that in more detail a little bit later. Now, this tenth that Abraham gave Melchizedek, that had nothing to do with Israel's law. Of course, Israel's law hadn't been written yet, as Adam Clark says. It was common practice devoted to devote a tenth of spoils of war to the God who supposedly won. And so... Basically, Abraham's given a tenth to Yahweh because he knows that Yahweh won that war for him, won that battle. It wasn't really a war. So he's giving a one-off gift to Melchizedek. The Levitical tithe in the Old Testament law was not one-off. It was annual. It was ongoing, but this is a one-off gift. It was not a tenth of his income. It was a tenth of the spoils of war. It had nothing to do with the tenth. So I would hope that no Christian would try to use Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek as an example of how Christians are supposed to give a tithe to God. This is not the way to do it. The New Testament standard for giving is joyful giving. It could very well be more than a tenth or less than a tenth. There's, there's no standard in the New Testament. But it's amazing how many Christians latch on to that 10%. I think it's just easy to calculate. And they say this is what ought to be given to God. It's not that easy. Now this tenth that Abraham gave to Melchizedek, that was a pledge of all the offeror's property. He's basically saying, I'm allied with you, I give you a tenth, but all of everything I've got is mine in case you ever need me again. Now, I've already said this, I'll say it again, this is that Melchizedek was called a king. It says his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Well, he's a king, but he's also called a priest in verse 1, priest of the Most High God. So in verse 1, he's a priest, verse 2, he's a king, he's a priest and a king, and that's a perfect type of Jesus, who was also a priest and a king. And of course, in the Old Testament, until Jesus came along, it was illegal to combine those two offices of priest and king. Division of power. It's a little bit of federalism there. We want to keep power not concentrated in one place. That was violated, of course, by the time the kingdom be degenerated into the Hasmonean dynasty right before Jesus came back in the first century B.C. And then they ended up having one person holding both the office of priest and king. But it was illegal. You're not supposed to do it. But Melchizedek, he was a king and a priest. And Jesus did it too. So he's again a perfect type of Jesus. We go to verse 3. This Melchizedek is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Now the fact that he had no genealogy shows that Melchizedek, who represented Jesus, is superior to the Levitical priest because they not only had a genealogy, they had to show it. They had to prove it in order to be a priest. They had a beginning and an end, because if you have a genealogy, you, you were begat from somebody, and then you begat somebody else after you died. Well, if you don't have a genealogy, that means you're eternal. You live forever. So Jesus lives forever. He's a priest forever like Melchizedek. In fact, Hebrews 7.24 makes this explicit. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Melchizedek didn't have a mother and a father. It's just that his mother and father, his his genealogy, his ancestors weren't available to the people back then, to the people that were writing, to, to Moses who was writing the, the, the book, uh, or to the people who were involved back then, before Moses, Abraham and his friends. 
They didn't know who Melchizedek's mother or father were. Now, some people say that Melchizedek was not actually human. He was he was a Christophany. He was a an appearance of Jesus. And, of course, Jesus doesn't have a genealogy, at least on the divine side. Of course, he did on the human side. I think that's a stretch. I think this was a human being like anybody else, and it's just they didn't have his genealogy. And so the author of Hebrews could say, see there, he doesn't have a genealogy, so he's he's a type of Jesus who lives forever. Now, this idea of being a priest forever was actually mentioned in Psalm 110, that messianic psalm that's quoted more times in the New Testament than any other psalm. Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, verse 4, now consider how great this man was, Melchizedek. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. Consider, that's from the Greek word theariol. It means not to consider as an indifferent spectator, but it rather means to use a critical discriminatory inspection. In other words, look at this real hard here. This is from Woost, the famous Greek scholar. Now consider how great this man was. Look at him closely. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. Even, even the father of the Hebrew race, even as great as Abraham was, even as wonderful and mighty and bodacious as Abraham was, even he gave plunder, a tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek, which shows that Melchizedek is superior. And again, the idea of the Levites, the priestly order of the Jewish religion, they were descendants of Abraham and so when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, so did the Levites, which shows, and the, the one who gives tithes is lesser than the one who received tithes, receives tithes. And since Melchizedek receives tithes and Levi, in the, in the aspect of Abraham, gave tithes, that means Levi is inferior to Melchizedek. Now, Abraham was a patriarch. That means, a, the Greek word literally means a beginning father. He was the father of a nation. He was literally the father of the Hebrew race. He was the first patriarch. John Gill says he was the patriarch of patriarchs. Even somebody as mighty as he gave away tithes, which shows he was inferior to this great Melchizedek, who stands for Jesus. So Abraham, the father of, of the Jews, is inferior to Melchizedek, a type of Jesus. So again, you Hebrew Christians, why would you want to go back to Judaism when you got it all right here in the Christian faith? Hebrews 7, verse 5. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. Now, what this means is, is that all of the tribes of Israel, except for the tribe of Levi, the other 11 tribes, they took a tenth of their income and they gave it to the tribe of Levi. So the Levites in general have a tenth. But now, of the sons of Levi, there was one family from whom the priest came. That's the family of Aaron. You had to be in the family of Aaron to be a priest. And so in the tribe of Levi, the Levites took their tenth that they had gotten from the other 11 tribes. And the sons of Levi then tithed that tenth. They gave a tenth of the tenth to the family of Aaron. So the priest ended up getting a tenth of a tenth. So we read the verse again, the sons of Levi who received the priestly office. You notice this is the priestly Levites. I'm going to distinguish the two. The generic Levites are those who can't be priests. The priestly Levites are those of the family of Aaron in the tribe of Levi who can be priests. So the generic 
the sons of Levi who received the priestly office, those are, are the priestly Levites, they have a command according to the law to collect the tenth from the people. Now, the people is not from the whole tribe of Israel. It's from their brothers because it says from the people that is from their brothers. So they could get a tenth from the Levites. So that tenth that they received from their brothers, the Levites, is a tenth of a tenth. And notice this is a command according to the law. Let me read that legal command, Numbers 18.24. For I have given them, given the Levites, the tenth that the Israelites present to the Lord as a contribution for their inheritance. That is why I told them that they would not receive an inheritance among the Israelites. The, the Levites didn't get any land, but they did get a tenth of livestock and so forth, crops, from the rest of the eleven tribes. And now the priest, the priestly Levites from the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi, they got a tenth of that tenth. Numbers 18.20 cents. 6 says this, Speak to the Levites and tell them, When you receive from the Israelites the tenth that I have given you as your inheritance, you must present part of it as an offering to the Lord, a tenth of the tenth. And an offering, the part that's an offering to the Lord, that meant it went to the priest, a tenth of a tenth. That was the command. That was the legal command. Now there's one, let me go into a little detail about this tenth. John Gill says there might be a problem. It might be because of the KGV translation, which I'm not using, but he says it's, Confusing when you say the sons of Levi collected a tenth from the people. It, but Gil says you have to be careful. It's the sons of Levi who received the priestly office. So it's not just your generic Levites. It's your, your priestly Levites who get a tenth from their other brothers, the, the Levites. If you say that is from their brothers, all of the tribe of Israel, then it's not exactly precise. It's not accurate because they don't get a tenth of, of offerings from all the other 11 tribes. Unless you do like John Gill says and say, well, the people could take, could, when they give their tenth to the Levites, they could take a tenth of that tenth out from the portion they give to the Levites and give it straight to the priest. Well, that, I don't think that's the way it worked. I think they gave a tenth. The tribe gave a tenth. The 11 tribes gave their tenth to the Levites, and the Levites collected the money. Then they divided up and gave it to the priest. Well, anyway, that's not difficult. But here at the end, it is a little bit difficult. Let me read the last the verse and, and emphasize the last portion of the verse. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, their brother Levites, though they have also descended from Abraham. Now, the quest problem here is what does that mean? Just because they collect money from the Levites, why would you say even though they have descended from Abraham? What in the world does that mean? Well, let me have to... Going through this several times, I'm just going to give you my attempt to solve it. I can't find any commentators that really try to explain this to me. So this is the way I'm going to solve it. I'm going to first of all assume that the people refers to what I'll call generic Levites, not priestly Levites, but just the general run-of-the-mill ordinary Levites. So the people refers to generic Levites, brothers refers to generic Levites, and the they refers to generic Levites. So let me read the verse again, substituting in for those three words. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the generic Levites, that is, from their brothers, the generic Levites, though they, the generic Levites, have also descended from Abraham. And then what does that mean? It means this, even though the generic Levites descended from Abraham, just like the priestly Levites, even though they were big shots, even though they were favored in Israel, they still had to pay tithes. Likewise, they have to pay tithes to Melchizedek because they are descendants of Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. I think that's what it means. 
I am sure to be staying corrected on that if necessary, but that's the best I could come up with. It's an interesting little phrase there, even though. Let me say that again. Even though these Levites were privileged to be descended from Abraham, just like the priestly Levites were, the generic Levites had to pay tithes because the, the, the priest among them received tithes from the other, their brother Levites. So the generic Levites had to pay tithes and so therefore, even though they're descended from Abraham, they still had to pay tithes. And so just as they had to pay tithes to their brother Levites, they also had to pay tithes to Melchizedek because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and the Levites were in the loins of Abraham. All right, so let's go to verse 6. But one without this lineage collected tents from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. This lineage is, this lineage is referring back to genealogy in verse 3. Hebrews 7, 3, three verses prior says this. Mechizedek is, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So one without this lineage, this genealogy that actually doesn't exist, this one, Mechizedek, collected tents from Abraham. Now this shows that Mechizedek is superior because there was no law requiring Abraham to pay tithes of Mechizedek. Abraham did it in acknowledgment of Mechizedek's greatness and superiority. He didn't have to do it, but he did it which showed that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And, and by extension, Melchizedek is greater than the tribe of Levi, who, which is in the loins of Abraham, which means that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood of the family of Aaron, which is also in the loins of Abraham, because they were Levites too. So, this Melchizedek blessed the one who had the promises. Of course, the one who had the promises was Abraham. He had three famous promises, land, offspring, and blessing. Those three promises set Abraham apart from all people on earth. And yet he still received blessings from Melchizedek. I mean, Abraham was a big dog. He was wealthy. He was the patriarch of patriarchs. He had received three fantastic promises from God, which are still in effect today as more and more Christians get saved. But he still received a blessing from Melchizedek. He was blessed by Melchizedek. One has to be superior to bless someone who already has everything. And Abraham already had everything, at least in embryo. And Melchizedek still blessed him. Melchizedek blessed the one who was going to bless the whole earth. This is what Adam Clark said. This is a continuation of the same argument, namely to show the superiority of Melchizedek, and in consequence, to prove the superiority of the priesthood of Christ beyond that of Aaron. As in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. Abraham received a sacerdotal blessing from Melchizedek who was the representative of the Messiah, the promised seed, to show that it was through him as the high priest of the human race that this blessing was to be derived on all mankind. So again, Hebrew Christians, why are you throwing that off? Why do you want to go back to Moses when you got Melchizedek, when you got Jesus? Hebrews 7, verse 7, Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. The inferior, of course, would be Abraham, as great as he was, and the inferior would include Levi, who was a descendant of Abraham. Now, let's look at this word blessed. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. What does blessed mean? Well, when the word is used to refer to a man blessing another, it means to express good wishes, to offer prayer to God for his welfare. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the principle that the blesser is superior to him whom he blesses holds good only in a blessing giving, given with divine authority, not merely a prayerful wish, but one that is divinely efficient in working its purport. In other words, it's not like, well, bless you, my child. You know, just people say that all the time. It's more than that. 
it's more than just expressing good wishes when one man blesses another. Adam, here's what it could mean, Adam Clark says, declaring prophetically that God intends to bestow good things upon another. Here's Clark's quotation, quote, The blessing here spoken of, says Dr. McKnight, is not the simple wishing of good to others, which may be done by inferiors to superiors, but it is the action of a person authorized to declare God's intention to bestow good things on another. In other words, I can go to my boss and say, bless you, gesundheit, <laughs> bless you and fear to my boss, but no, it, usually you would take it the other way around. Your boss would bless you with a pay raise. They've got authority to really do something good to you. So that's when referring when a man blessing to another, it's usually it's superior to inferior, assuming the superior has the authority to really convey good things on the inferior. Now the word can mean God blessing a person, giving him physical, spiritual gifts, or could refer to God, the blessed God, our blessed hope. That means God is happy because you can't give God something. He's got everything already. But basically, the idea is a man blessing another superior to an inferior. In the Old, Te in Old Testament thinking, the greater always blessed the lesser, especially in the Old Testament, maybe not so much in our culture. I mean, we say our children bless us. That would be inferior to superior. But back then in the Old Testament, that's not the way they thought. It was always the greater to the lesser. And that's why the author of the book of Hebrews says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. The inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior Melchizedek. We go to verse 8, Hebrews 7. In the one case, men who will die receive tents, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. Well, in the one case, that's the Levitical priesthood. Men who will die, that's the people of the tribe of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. They get their tents from their brother Levites, the tenth of a tenth. They get it, but they're going to die. The Levites, the priests are going to die. Might be referring to the, to the Levites also who weren't priests but were Levites. But just keep it simple. Let's just say it's the priest. They're going to die. But in the other case, and that would be the case of Melchizedek, the scripture testifies that he lives. Well, how does the scripture testify that he lives? Well, in the sense that his death was never recorded in a genealogy. The scripture says it, just, it, says it by not saying it. By, by, it's kind of a, a negative inference. There is no genealogy there, so we can infer from that that he lives forever. Of course, this is speaking literarily or metaphorically. I don't think that, I'm sure that Moses didn't think that Melchizedek will live forever. I used to think that when I was a kid reading that. Wow, what is this guy living as a king of Salem and he lives forever? No, that's not what the book is trying to say. The author of Hebrews is just trying to make a point. This Melchizedek, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big dude and he lives forever, but only in a literary sense. doesn't mean actually, in my humble opinion. I don't believe it's a Christophany. Melchizedek. I don't believe Melchizedek is an appearance of Jesus himself personally. Hebrews 7 verses 9 through 10 and we'll shut this audio down. And in a sense Levi himself who receives tents has paid tents through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him in his loins as the King James puts it. I like that. Levi is in Abraham's loins because he was a descendant of Abraham. Now, notice that the author says, in a sense, he's obviously speaking literarily here or metaphorically here. He's not speaking lit literally here. It's only in a sense. How, to, in a sense, did Levi pay tents? Well, he's a descendant of Abraham. Abraham paid tents to Melchizedek. Therefore, all of Abraham's descendants paid tents to Abraham. Simple as that. Now, here are three ways Abraham and his descendant Levi are inferior to Melchizedek. Number one, Abraham paid, did not receive, but paid tithes. So Levites paid tithes, didn't receive them. 
Bekizledek blessed Abraham. So receiving a blessing means somebody superior has got to be blessing you. And three, Levitical priests die, but Melchizedek lasts forever, which we've just talked about. That just summarizes the main course of the distinction of the comparison there. Let me just summarize real quick here what we can say about Melchizedek in anticipation of our next audio. How is Melchizedek like Christ? He's king of righteousness. So is Jesus. He's the king of Salem, the king of peace. So is Jesus. He blessed the people of God through Abraham. Melchizedek did. Jesus blesses his people. Melchizedek has no genealogy, therefore he's a priest forever. So is Jesus a priest forever. Melchizedek received tithes. Jesus receives tithes. He doesn't pay him, so he's superior. And I think that that basically summarizes the relationship between Melchizedek and Levi. We'll take it up in more detail in the next audio. But before I leave here, one one little point that's a little bit off topic here. The idea that since Abraham and in his loins Levi paid tithes, that this is a verse that can be used to enjoin Christians to pay tithes. First of all, Christians are not under the law of Moses like Levi was. And also notice that Abraham paid tithes voluntarily. He was not legally compelled to pay those tithes. Now, of course, Christians can pay tithes voluntarily, but you can't say that they must do it because it's in the Bible and it's required of them. You can't do that because Abraham wasn't required to pay those tithes. He did it voluntarily. I'm telling you, people will give more money when they do it cheerfully and willingly. Even John R. Rice, the great fundamentalist writer, sword of the Lord guy, he said, I don't believe in this storehouse doctrine of paying tithes according to the law. He says people give more when they don't when you don't teach them that. All right. We are finished now with verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews. In our next audio, we'll take up verses 11 through 28 and compare Jesus to Melchizedek. Hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.